You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31. As we continue to explore the life of the patriarch Jacob. Now I noted last week how it's not uncommon to read an account in the Bible and realize that it is simultaneously a prequel and a sequel. It echoes and builds upon things that have already come before while foreshadowing and pointing ahead to things to come. And the life of Jacob does that. We saw some of that last week. Uh, We'll see some more of that today. Jacob was the heir to the covenant promises of God, uh, promises which included a multitude of offspring that would become a great nation, bringing salvation and redemption to the whole world. And yet, those promises appeared to be in jeopardy. Uh, Jacob was living far away from home. He was in exile without a penny to his name, and he was entangled and impressed by his, uh, not impressed, but oppressed, (laughs) oppressed by his cruel uncle Laban. And after serving him with hard labor for 14 years, Jacob was ready to return home. He's ready to go back to Canaan, the land that God promised would belong to he and his descendants, and Importantly, the land that they must be in if the promise of God to save the world is to come true. The problem was that after 14 years, he was still destitute. Everything that he had earned had gone to his uncle. Jacob really had been in a slave-like situation under the thumb of a Pharaoh-like tyrant. And Laban doesn't want Jacob to go anywhere. God's blessing Jacob's work, and Laban is benefiting And Jacob agrees to stay with Laban and continue to manage his flocks on the condition that a small portion of the flock would go to him so that he could begin to build his own wealth and resources and hopefully gain some independence from Laban so that he could provide for his own family. But over the next six years, Laban continuously would change the terms of their contract to try to get the upper hand. But no matter what Laban does, Jacob prospers. His flock gets bigger and stronger, and Laban's gets smaller and weaker. And as Laban and his sons see this increasing shift of wealth from them to Jacob, their attitude takes a very dark and very hostile turn. And there's a dark cloud of threat hanging over Jacob's head, and he realizes that he is trapped in a very dangerous situation. Well, around that time, God commanded Jacob to go back to Canaan, which Jacob is very eager to do. And when he consults with Rachel and Leah about this, his wives, they admit that they too have felt like slaves uh, that their father has bought and sold and used up for his own ends. And they affirm that God is bringing them justice in transferring Laban's wealth to Jacob's. And, and, And that was a big step of faith for these ladies. They would risk much in leaving. But in the end, they say, yes, do whatever God has told you to do. And, and we're told in verse 19 that as Jacob and his family steal away in secret, Rachel steals Laban's household gods. That's going to be a problem that comes back to haunt them a little later. We left off last week in verse 21 where Moses tells us that Jacob fled with all that he had. He rose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. Jacob is determined. He is resolute. He's done with bondage. He's done with his time of exile. He's resolved to return to the promised land to claim his inheritance. So that's uh, that was the cliffhanger that we, that we left off on last week. Let's see what happens next. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We're in Genesis chapter 31, and we're going to start 
verse 22. Moses writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean, or Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you've gone away because you long greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. And the presence of our kinsmen point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? See it, set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house." I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. The God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children. The flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters, or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. They took the stones and made a heap, and they ate there by this heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid 
and Mizpah. For he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that what we have just read is not the opinion or musings of mere man, but the very Word of God. And so I pray that you would help us approach it this morning with eager ears and attentive hearts, ready to hear and perceive and believe what your Spirit has to say through this Word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, that's a lot of high drama. You can divide today's drama into four main acts. That's what we'll do this morning. Act one is Laban's pursuit. Laban's pursuit. Uh, Jacob picked a smart time to flee from Laban. Verse 19 says he did it when Laban went out to shear his sheep. Now, that would have been a massive, all-consuming project for Laban. That would have required uh, large numbers of men working at great distances from their homes for very long periods of time. And this would give Jacob and his household a head start. And folks, they needed a head start because this move is not as simple as just getting a U-Haul truck and throwing in some furniture and some miscellaneous junk and just driving off in a few hours. Jacob had four wives, lots of kids, and they accumulated lots of stuff over 20 years. Verse 17 mentions livestock and property and possessions. He's got to organize all of this for a camelback journey of nearly 500 miles. This is a massive operation, and it is slow going. Uh, In verse 22, we see how Jacob's plan paid off. Laban didn't discover discover Jacob's departure uh, for three days. But when he does find out, he is furious. Laban gathers his men, and he is on the warpath. And make no mistake, he has violent intent. This is even seen in the author's word choices, which are militaristic. Verse 23 says, he pursued Jacob. He followed close after him. Verse 25 says, Laban overtook Jacob. Also in verse 25, you have this word uh, pitching, pitching tents. Uh, It's not the normal Hebrew word for this. This word denotes the pounding or thrusting of an object into something, and often it connotes hostility. The words used in Jeremiah chapter 6 which warns about the impending violent disaster on Jerusalem, where Jeremiah writes, they shall pitch their tents around her, which is followed by the battle cry, prepare war against her. And you can imagine then the concern that Jacob felt when he saw that cloud of dust on the horizon and he realized who it was that was fast approaching. Confrontation was imminent and things could get very ugly. Now, why the hostility? Well, back up with me to to verses 19 and 20. These are fascinating verses. Uh, Verse 19 says, Rachel stole her father's household gods. And verse 20 says, Jacob tricked 
Laban. Literally, verse 20 says from the Hebrew, Jacob stole the heart of Laban. Now, when we think about, when we think of stealing the heart, we tend to think in romantic terms, like back in 1996, when I met Dana at Prairie Bible College, she stole my heart. That's, that's what we think about when we think of stealing the heart. Here, stealing the heart, <clears throat> it's a Hebrew idiom, and it connotes the taking away of a person's ability to discern and act appropriately. And so to translate it just as deceive loses the wordplay, and it loses the parallelism between Rachel's theft and Jacob's. They both steal from Laban. Rachel steals the household gods that Laban would rely on for divination and guidance. Jacob steals the heart of Laban, and, and that Jacob's action has stolen Laban's ability to act appropriately. And the wordplay there shows that Rachel and Jacob are really two of a kind here. Uh, And they are acting in unison against Laban. This isn't excusing Rachel's theft, but it is showing us that the tide is turning in this grand struggle. That after 20 years of Laban being on top and having everybody under his thumb, the cracks in the edifice are beginning to show. This is the beginning of Laban's downfall. Uh, The man who tried to control everything and everybody for 20 years now finds that illusion of control unraveling. And Laban is in hot pursuit because Laban is an idolater. Not just in the sense that he has these little household gods that Rachel stole, but also in that Laban is a greedy and covetous man. And I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in Colossians 3.5, where he urges us to put to death, therefore, covetousness, which is idolatry. At the heart of idolatry is covetousness. And covetousness is the desiring of something to the degree that you have got to have it at all costs. Uh, where the thing that you crave looms larger in your life than anything else, even God. In fact, your desires become God. That's why Paul can call covetousness idolatry. And Laban is emblematic of the person who rejects God, who chases after wealth and success and security apart from God. Who, who, uh, Laban is, is emblematic of the person who will embrace any other God except for the real one, and, and who ultimately wants to be God of his own life. And such a man or woman may be able to, for a time, create an illusion of success and control and self-sufficient autonomy apart from God. But sooner or later, the cracks in the wall appear and they get bigger and bigger until the whole tower comes crashing down. And that's how it is for everyone who rejects God. The things that you put your hope in outside of God never ultimately delivers and ultimately leads to destruction. It's like the man who built his house on a sandy foundation, as Jesus uh, talked about in Matthew chapter 7. Eventually, such a life is reduced to ruin because it's not built on the foundation of God and His Word and His promises. And Laban is about to discover this. Laban sees the things that he covets, his wealth, his power, his control. He sees these things slipping away, and whenever you see your gods threatened, you get angry. You panic. You get irrational. This is why your life is unstable whenever anything looms in your life larger than God. You know something of this. I know something of this. Uh, Whether you covet wealth or approval or security, whatever shaky foundation that you have built your life on will eventually result in instability, anger, or fear, or all of the above, because nothing except God is truly reliable, and nothing except God can provide for you what you really need. Even the fact that Laban's gods can be stolen is illustrative of that. 
And we'll circle back around to Laban's action figures in a moment. Now, this is, but this is exactly why Laban responds to Jacob's departure with a mixture of panic and fury. He's out of control. But after several days of hard pursuit, he's caught his quarry. As the sun sets, both sides prepare for the confrontation the next day. And it's not hard to imagine Jacob that night going to bed fearful and restless. Jacob knows that he is helpless. He knows that he is powerless. Now, on the other hand, it's also not hard to imagine Laban, who is coming with strength and power and who always sees himself as the hero of his own story. And he's going to bed smug and confident, thinking, I've done it. I've caught that little cheat. I'm going to win. I'm going to get back what's mine. But as he goes to bed, whatever dreams he may have had about victory are shattered as he has a very different and disturbing dream, which leads to act two, God's intervention. God's intervention. Verse 24 says, but God. Hmm. You know, often when those two words are together, those, those are the best words in the Bible. But God. But God showed up. But God intervened. Verse 24, but God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now that phrase, uh, don't say anything either good or bad, that's a warning. It's a warning to Laban to, to tread carefully, to not harm Jacob, and to not even really interfere in what's going on. There's really, a, this is a thinly veiled threat, like if you mess with Jacob, you mess with me. So walk carefully in this situation. Watch yourself. And so here God delivers Jacob by setting himself in between Jacob and the enemy. Now that's an echo of things we've seen already in the past in Genesis, isn't it? In Genesis 20, when King Abimelech had taken Sarah, Abraham's wife, into his household, God intervened and said to him, you are a dead man because you're about to take another man's wife. This is, this is a pattern we see in the scriptures that, that is part of the history of redemption where in the most dire and darkest of moments when all seems lost, God arrives on the scene and he places himself in between his people and the thing that threatens them. We're going to see it again in the Exodus where Jacob's descendants, the nation of Israel, were in bondage to Pharaoh. God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my people go, or I'm going to kill your firstborn son. In other words, you mess with my people, you mess with me. And, and God delivers them from Egypt, from Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh, consumed by his idolatrous, covetous greed, pursues Israel, like, Jacob, uh, like Laban himself per, uh, pursued Jacob. And, and when all seemed lost, God in a pillar of fire, appearing in a pillar of fire, places himself between Israel and the armies of Pharaoh and provides them a way of escape through the Red Sea. That's the story of redemptive history. Time and time again, we see this. God's people are helpless. They're bound. They're weak. The enemy is strong and dangerous and powerful. And God miraculously intervenes, demonstrating to everyone that the power to deliver and the power to save is not in the hand of any man, but in God alone through his grace. And mercy. So, God intervenes, and he shakes Laban up with a fearful dream. And this changes everything that Laban thought that he was going to do against Jacob. Every, everything you see and hear from Laban after this is just bluster. It's just talk. It's, it's just an attempt of Laban to save face and be seen as right. But in addition, uh, Laban's bluster also gives us a greater glimpse into Laban's heart and his complete and utter self-delusion. 
So the sun rises and the confrontation begins. Verse 26, Laban said to Jacob, what have you done if you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Now that's, that's, that's a remarkable irony that he says something like that. Because Jacob actually sought his wife's counsel and, and their permission to leave. And they left quite willingly. He accuses Jacob of holding his daughters captive. And yet who has been the one who has treated his daughters like captives these past 20 years? It's been Laban. Everything that Laban has done has been to keep them under his control. In verse 27, Laban then tries emotional manipulation. He, he tries to take the high ground and painting himself as an innocent, wounded, and wronged father. And, and he essentially says, why, why didn't you tell me that you were leaving so I could just throw you guys a big party and send you away with mirth and songs and tambourines and lyre? And I can imagine Rachel and Leah looking at one another with incredulous smirks on their faces. How hollow Laban's words must have sounded to everybody there. Folks, they had already experienced Laban's version of a happy family party back in chapter 29. And how did that work out for everybody? The only one that really benefited was Laban. He then says, why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Laban is creepy. He's creepy. He regards everything here, even the people, as belonging to him. This is going to become very explicit in a few verses. Then, he attempts to embarrass Jacob in front of his family. He says, now you have done foolishly. And then, verse 29, he threatens. He says, it's in my power to do you harm. Now, why would he say that? What, if he were merely a wounded father who missed his daughters and grandkids and he just wanted to kiss them goodbye, why would he say something like that? Folks, we're getting a glimpse of what's really in Laban's heart here, and what was in his heart was violence. And by the way, when he says, this is my power to do you harm, that word you is in the plural. I have the, I have the power to harm all of you right now. Laban is a dangerous man. Laban is willing to do whatever it takes to get what he thinks is his, which is everything. And then Laban admits that the one thing that held him back from hurting anyone is that God, the God of your father, spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And by the way, in that statement, he contradicts himself. Uh, Laban has just admitted that he really doesn't have the power to harm anyone because he's, he's not in control. God is in control. For all of Laban's power, God is more powerful. And this, by the way, should be a, of great comfort to all of God's people. There is not a single threat that can actually reach you without it first passing through God. And if God does let it pass, it means that he has a good and wise purpose in it all. So ultimately, the course of your life is not in the hands of other people. That would be a very scary universe to live in. If that were true, if, if, if your fate was in the hands of other people, ultimately, your life is in the hands of the God who loves you and is working all things together for good on your behalf. I'm reminded of the time when Jesus was standing before Pilate, and Pilate threatened him and said, do you not know that I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So who's really in control here? And Laban, for all of his bluster, is now realizing the truth. He can do nothing outside of God's sovereign permission. Verse 30 brings the final accusation from Laban. He says, why did you steal my gods? 
Now, this, this, is the, this is the accusation that surely catches Jacob off guard. He doesn't see this one coming. And so, in an attempt to defend himself, he speaks rashly, and in verse 32, he says, anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. This really heightened the tension, doesn't it? Uh, Jacob and Rachel really are two of a kind, aren't they? Uh, This time, both almost bring ruin on the family by their risk-taking. She by her rash theft, and he by his rash vow, which leads to Act 3, idols' humiliation. Idols' humiliation. Probably the most bizarre statement in this entire chapter comes out of the mouth of Laban when he says, why did you steal my gods? That's an interesting statement when you just sit and think about it for a moment. One commentator writes that the, that the ancient reader would not miss the sarcasm in this story, for here we have a new crime, godnapping. It never occurred to Laban that if your gods can be stolen, if your gods need to be rescued, then maybe these gods are to quote the ever-eloquent and philosophical Incredible Hulk, they are puny gods. Or how about this? Or how about this? Has Laban ever considered that they aren't really gods at all? Now, what about Rachel? Why, why does Rachel do this? Why does she steal the household gods? There's a lot of speculation from folks out there about this. Some say, well, maybe she's still tempted to idolatry. Others think maybe there was a monetary value in the idols. But perhaps the simplest, uh, simplest explanation is the best. That, that she did what she did out of spite, to get back at dad. She's furious at him. And she knows these gods were important to him, and she took them to spite him. But regardless of the reasons, Rachel's actions are rash and wrong, and they jeopardize the whole family and her very life. But in spite of this, interestingly enough, through God's providence, the theft of these idols will end up paving the way, not to Jacob's defeat, but to Laban's. Well... Rachel's crime of godnapping has sent her father on a panicked frenzy. He's described as feeling through all of their goods. His fingers are everywhere. He's going from tent to tent. He's overturning containers. He's dumping stuff out. He's looking everywhere. He, he goes from tent to tent, and then he enters Rachel's tent. Verse 34 says, Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. If you're Hebrew, you're supposed to laugh there. This is supposed to be funny. The Old Testament is always poking fun at the gods through satire, through biting sarcasm, through mockery. Folks, Laban is looking for his missing deities. And all the while, Rachel is sitting on them. That's funny. See, loosen up. I hear a couple chuckles out there. I know we're Baptists here, but come on now. By the way, if Rachel actually did like still worship those old gods, she would have never treated the idols in such an irreverent way. I don't, I don't think she's tempted to worship these things. And, and the humor here is that Rachel is literally pinning down Laban's gods, and they are trapped and helpless. And, and this really calls into question the strength of Laban's gods, doesn't it? Think about this. Think about the contrast we see in this chapter. Jacob's god appears to Laban in a dream and stops him right in his tracks. Laban's gods are helpless, stuffed in a camel bag, and being held down by one woman. But it gets even better. Well, better if you were the original audience of Genesis and who would appreciate this sort of humor and weren't as proper and stuffy as us church folk. (laughs) 
Laban gets to Rachel's tent, and verse 35, she says to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. I know we need to be as delicate about this as possible. She, she's on her monthly cycle. Now again, if you're an ancient Israelite, you're ready to totally crack up. If you're a Baptist, you're getting nervous. This is humor, but it is a raw and scathing humor because, as Bruce Walke put it, these deities are in the position of serving as nothing more than sanitary napkins. She's seen here as defiling the gods. Now, friends, the Bible never uses humor just for the sake of humor. The Bible's not frivolous that way. The Bible always uses humor because there is a serious point to make. And the point here is the absolute stupidity and worthlessness of idols. Jeremiah chapter 10, the prophet writes, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. He's talking about people who are worshiping idols. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there's no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. The Lord of hosts is his name. I'm reminded of an article that once appeared in an Indian newspaper. <clears throat> had an article about a, a Hindu procession. They have lots of gods over there in India, millions of them. <clears throat> and the procession featured a statue of a god. <clears throat> and the paper said, Last evening, during the course of the procession, the deity most unfortunately fell off into the drain. By the concerted efforts of the worshippers, however, he was restored to his position at 8 o'clock. Just that story alone demonstrates the stupidity of idols. And even we non-Hebrews might laugh and chuckle at that. But here's the thing. Whatever thing in your life that you are tempted to hope in, to find ultimate meaning and security and satisfaction in apart from God, that thing is a rival God in your life. And it is looming way too large in your life and it is controlling you. And, and, and that thing is, whatever it is, even if it's a good thing, if it has become your idol, then it is just as foolish and useless and weak as Laban's little action figures stuffed in a saddlebag. If your joy and your fear and your anger hinges on and is rooted in the approval of man or physical comfort and security or the quest for a perfect family or a perfect church or a career or where you live, if it's rooted in the kind of life that you think that you should have, or if it's rooted in the outcome of the November elections. And yes, brothers and sisters, I see politics as a huge idol that has emerged in our country and is even in our churches. And that God's temple is social media. And the sacrifices are all of the anger and hatred and contempt that is spewing forth from millions of keyboards every day. And if that has become your God, or if any other thing has become the center of your affections and hopes and identity, you need to take those idols, wherever they are, whatever they are in your life, you need to shove them into Rachel's camel bag and sit on them. They are weak rival gods, and to build your life on them is to build on a sandy foundation that will bring about the collapse of your life. And by the way, that can happen even while you acknowledge the God of the Bible. 
Laban acknowledges the God of the Bible. Folks, he met him in a dream the previous night. And yet, and here's the sad thing about it, he's still desperate for his worthless idols. And that's the state of all mankind apart from the grace of God. Everyone knows in their heart of hearts that the one true God exists. But because we want, we in our sin want to be Lord instead of God, we then therefore ditch God and we invent and cling to idols that we can manipulate, that we can control, and that, 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 that can provide for us the things that we think that we should have. And Laban has lost the things that he has hoped for, and he is de- he's a desperate man. Uh, but his search is in vain. And you can imagine that the longer the search goes on, the angrier Jacob gets, which leads to act four, God's triumph. God's triumph. I was actually tempted uh, to name this point uh, Jacob's triumph or Jacob's vindication because Jacob really does begin to shine here as he stands up to Laban once and for all. Verse 36, Jacob became angry and berated Laban. He said, what's my offense? What's my sin that you've hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen, your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. Now, it's just all coming out. I mean, you know, have you ever, like, bottled up frustration for a long period of time? And, 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 and finally, when you begin to open up your mouth a little bit about, about it, it's not a little bit, all of it comes out. That's exactly what has happened. This is 20 years of buildup. Uh, this, this man has never, obviously, had a conversation with Laban about it. It's all coming up now. <clears throat> and here, Jacob is defending his integrity. Now, the point here is that I have done you right all of these years. Verse 39, what was torn by wild beasts, I I did not bring it to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hands you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Now, what's interesting is that that wasn't legally required of a shepherd. Jacob didn't have to bear the loss himself, but he does. He absorbed the loss himself. And there there's a, seems to be a little hint there that, that Laban kind of pressured that. And then he says, and what he says next, by the way, should dispel kind of your um, idyllic notions of, of, of shepherd life. Right? We, we, we think of shepherds as kind of lazy in the sun and, and you know, surrounded by smiling sheep and, and having a nice, pleasant time. But, but here, this, this is more of the, 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 the real story. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house, I served you for 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, you changed my wages 10 times. In other words, what he's saying is is that you're the real thief here, Laban. And I can imagine now his wives just saying under their breath, yeah, you give it to him, Jacob. Finally, Jacob is manning up and actually sticking up for himself and his family. And then the climax of the speech, verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, I love that phrase, the fear of Isaac, If he had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction. Again, this is Exodus language. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And I'm convinced that that this whole speech from Jacob is the world's first mic drop. Because Jacob's had it. And he makes an important confession, which I think is the, the key verse in this whole chapter. 
if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. If you're going to highlight anything in the chapter, highlight that. This is, this is it. This is the point. And this is a huge confession because, because this is Jacob the grasper. This is Jacob the heel grabber, and that's what his name means. He was always attempting to get and grasp what he thought he needed through his own strength and his own cleverness. But here, Jacob is confessing that his entire deliverance has come about not through his own hand, but exclusively through God's hand. Unlike Laban's gods, Jacob's God is not puny. Jacob calls him the fear of Isaac. The title carries the idea of awesomeness, even of dread. This is the God of Jacob who stopped little Laban in his tracks and has revealed who has really been in charge and who has really been in control all of this time. Now, after Jacob's scorching indictment, Laban has nothing much to say. All he can do is retreat back into some sort of semblance of self-righteousness. Verse 33, he says, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine, 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 mine. What a pathetic man. Again, Laban sees himself as owning everything, and he sees Jacob as the thief. This is self-delusion on a massive scale. And this is where persistent idolatry leads. In Psalm 115, the psalmist talks about how idols can't speak or see or hear or smell or feel or walk. They are dumb and useless. And then the psalmist says in verse 8, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. There is something about idolatry that results in spiritual and moral stupidity. And this is why an unbeliever with a high IQ and three PhDs next to his name can look at things that are immoral and call them good, and and look at the things of God that are good and call them bad. It's why there's such moral confusion in our country today, because idolatry has run rampant in the hearts of men. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. And then Laban finally surrenders and says, but what can I do this day for these daughters or for their children whom they have born? He says, he says essentially he's saying, I, I may have lost, but you need to know that these things are mine. <laughs> that's his last immature parting shot. That's, that's the best that he can do. And then Laban initiates a covenant, and he does this for his own protection. Jacob doesn't need protection. We found that out. He has God. But, but after, after Laban has so, so um, uh, insulted and enraged Jacob, he feels the need for some security of his own. And so they set up stones, they make a heap, and, and the place is named Mizpah, which means watchtower. And Laban says, the Lord watched between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. <clears throat> now, this is one of those verses that has been completely ripped out of context in evangelical pop culture. Evangelical pop culture is good at doing this to verses. We have taken this verse and we have turned it into jewelry. Maybe, maybe you've seen these, the, the, the Mizpah pendant. Uh, it's a little pendant broken in two pieces that can fit together like a puzzle. One half says, the Lord watch between you and me. The other half says, when we are absent from one another. And it's supposed to be kind of a nice, sweet, syrupy thing that two besties have. And when they're apart from one another, the one keeps the one half of the necklace and the other person keeps the other half of it. It's just a real sweet thing. Uh, may the Lord watch between us while we're absent from one another. It's beautiful. And, and we, we, we turn that verse into a blessing. And then, and then they, we, they, the two friends get together and they, you know, they have a moment putting the little necklace back together and all is well. 
We think that it is a blessing, but, but folks, this statement here is not a blessing, it's a curse. May the Lord watch between you and me because I don't trust you. That, that's the point of it. It's not a benediction. It's a non-aggression pact. And it's a way of saying, if you cross this line, and if you come over to my land to harm me, to do me wrong, may death and ruin come into your life. That's what the heap of stones stands for, death and ruin. May, may, may your life be like this ruin of stones. So I, I won't be using that verse as the benediction when we close, just so you know. And then verse 53, Laban says, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. Now, now the God of Nahor should be God's small g. Uh, the, the verb in this verse is plural. Laban is a polytheist. I think he's talking about two gods here. The God of Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, the real God, and then also the God of Nahor, Laban's grandfather, uh, the false deity his side of the family worshipped. But you notice when, when, when uh, Jacob swears, he just swears by the fear of his father Isaac. He doesn't care about this other nonsense, these other gods. And then in verse 54, they seal the covenant with a meal. They camp there for the night, and then Laban rises early, returns home defeated and empty-handed. And Jacob leaves, bound for the promised land, with everything. And that early Jewish audience of Genesis now would want to stand on their feet and applaud. Laban and his gods are defeated, and God's people are delivered. Just as Pharaoh and his gods were defeated in the Exodus, and the children of Israel were delivered. And again, verse 42 is that the key verse here. You don't want to miss this. If God had not been on my side. That's the whole point. If God had not been on my side, disaster would be inevitable. But God. But God. God is on our side. God is for the people of God. And God takes care of his people no matter what the threat and even when we don't deserve it. But God. But God is the story of redemption. Uh, with Jacob, with Israel and the Exodus, throughout the whole Bible, and most importantly, with the great saving work done through Christ. The Bible speaks of you, Harbin's church, as having been in captivity and in spiritual bondage by one worse than Laban, worse than Pharaoh. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, willing slaves in his kingdom, more helpless than Jacob in the mountains of Gilead or Israel when the chariots of Pharaoh were bearing down on them. Bible says we were dead. You can't get more helpless than dead. Dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, deserving of God's wrath because of our collusion with Satan. And then, after that bleak picture, Ephesians 2.4 says those glorious words, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And how did he save you? God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, into this world to do what God has constantly done throughout redemptive history, to set himself between his people and the thing that threatened them the most. And it turned out your biggest and most fearsome enemy and threat was not the devil, but God himself. Your sins made you an enemy of God and deserving of death. 
but as he hung on the cross, Jesus became your representative, setting himself between you and the all-consuming wrath of God. That wrath that should have come upon you went on Jesus instead, and having fully paid the price for sin, he sets you free and led you on a great exodus. Uh, Luke 9.31 describes Jesus' great act as an exodus. Uh, It's an exodus that led you from the bondage of condemnation and death and freed you from the accusing finger of the devil. The the finger that pointed at you and said, you sinned and you deserve to die and go to hell. But if you believe in the gospel, you can say, no, 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 I have already died and I have already been to hell in Christ. Friends, that's what Andrew's baptism signified this morning. That, that his faith united him to Jesus, and so Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection now counts for him. And so Andrew and all who believe can say with confidence, God has set, me, has set himself between me and the wrath I deserve, and now, having been set free, I am not bound for hell, but for heaven, for the promised land that has been promised to all of God's people. If you're a believer, rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. And if you're not then you need to know that you are following in the footsteps of Laban, trapped in your hope in false gods, bound to idols that will not save. They will not ultimately give you what you need. And if you persist in clinging to them, you will, like Laban, in the end, end up defeated, disappointed, and empty-handed for eternity. And so, friend, I urge you to believe and to receive the freedom that is offered in Jesus to repent of your sins, to turn to the true and living God, who is the only God who saves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word yet again. And I pray that these truths would sink deep down into our hearts and that we would really embrace and understand the weight of that truth in verse 42, if God had not been with me. It all hinges on you and your acts of grace and mercy and deliverance. And I pray that you would help us to live lives that are more consciously dependent on you. Father, thank you that you are the one who saves. Thank you that we are not. That would be bad news if deliverance hinged on our shoulders and on our efforts. But thank you that we can say, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, has come and saved and delivered. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.